Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bible this evening and turn to the Gospel of Mark. As we continue our study of the apostles, we have been looking at the lives of the disciples, those who, men who were molded by the Master. I think it's interesting to look into their lives because sometimes we, we think we're very familiar with some of these disciples because we're familiar with their names. But we don't know many prominent details about their life. All of these men had pasts, and we've looked at, we've broken them up into various categories, the, the different groupings, and when they're listed, we find them in these groups. The first group of Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We've been looking at the disciples in the second group, and understanding that these men had ups and downs, life disappointments and joys, achievements and failures. They made choices that intentionally or unintentionally contributed to who they were and, and where they were. Some of them are identified by their family members, the brother of or the son of. We considered Thomas a couple of weeks ago. He's, he's really identified by being a twin. That's what his name meant, that he was a twin. There are two disciples, though, that are identified by their past. Simon, who's in that third group, was known as the zealot. And Matthew, who we're going to consider tonight, was known by his occupation as a tax collector. King James uses the word publican. One is identified by his politics, the other by his profession, his occupation. Matthew, the tax collector. And what we find is really a window into their lives and how the Lord changed them. Matthew is a name that we're very familiar with because of the gospel that bears his name. But we really don't know that much about him personally. What we do realize, though, was he was a tax collector. And I want us to consider him this evening and see how the Lord transformed him. I've had you turn to Mark chapter 2. We can look at his call here. Then we're going to go back and look at some of the background of his life and, and move forward as we consider this. If you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 2, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 13. Now, the context of this is in the city of Capernaum. That's the, the hometown of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It was on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is where they would go fishing, and we see that at the beginning of chapter 2. That's where it takes place, and then they return to this area, and, and Jesus is walking by the sea. And so that's what we're going to find as we look at this. It says in, in verse 13, then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw that him eating with tax collectors and sinners, 
They said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In this passage, we get that window into the call of Matthew and a little bit about his life, a little bit about his background. That while we're very familiar with him, we often kind of breeze over that, that his Jewish name was Levi. We, we read that in this passage. We see that in Luke chapter 5, that he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office, said, follow me, and he followed. But do we understand what that meant? I mean, the man is a Jew. He's the son of a man named Alphaeus. He's mentioned five times in the Bible, two times in Matthew, once in Mark, once in in Luke, and once in Acts. His name name Levi tells us something about his parents, that, that his parents named him after that priestly tribe from which his lineage probably would be traced. I mean, the the priestly tribe spoke of being set apart for a purpose of worship. What a noble calling. What a noble position. What a noble desire his parents must have had for him as they watched him grow. To watch this little boy grow up and the the dreams that the parents must have had that, that he would do something great for the Lord. What a disappointment he must have been. He didn't become a priest or a scribe or a fisherman, he became a publican, a tax collector. He's identified by his, his past, his occupation, and, and we, we see that in multiple places. But I find it interesting that when Matthew lists himself in the group of disciples, he's the one who mentions Matthew the tax collector. You know, Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. I mean, imagine what his parents must have thought. I mean, talk about parental disappointment. You have high hopes for your child, and and he ends up with this kind of an occupation. I mean, he went from their dreams of him being a priest in Israel, kind of the top of the heap to the bottom of the barrel. Because while it doesn't mean a lot to us, It doesn't carry the baggage to the Jewish audience, to the Jewish listener. To be a tax collector for Rome was about as low as you could go. Matthew was probably the most notorious uh, sinner of all the apostles. We don't usually think of Matthew that way. When we think of who would be the most notorious, we would think Judas. And yes, that's true from our perspective and from looking backwards, but, but from their perspective, here's a tax collector. I mean, this is a man who had sided with Rome. Tax collectors were the most despised people in Israel. No office was more detested than that. It, it symbolized for Israel degradation, that they were under the servitude of Rome, and, and that the people that were collecting taxes were Jews working for Rome, and so they, they really had lost all self-respect and had no character. See, in, in the Roman Empire, taxes were assessed on almost everything. Everything you had and did. Income, grain, fruit, 
the number of axles on a cart, bridges, roads, real estate, you know, livestock. Say, well, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Welcome to America. <laughs> but there was a major difference. Well, we may not like taxes, we at least know what they are or at least can find out. That's not how it worked in Rome. See, in Rome, there would be a tax franchise. So someone in Rome would purchase the franchise to tax a, a certain province, to have the right to tax that, that state or province. And then they would subcontract to someone who would usually subcontract to somebody else to collect those taxes. And every person in that line would add their cut. So by the time the taxes were actually levied, the last person to know what they were going to be taxed was the person who had to pay it. And everyone in that chain would add their own fee. You know, we, we're not used to that kind of thing. No, a number of years ago, I, I took a, a mission trip to Mexico. I mentioned one of those trips a few weeks ago. This was a different one. Uh, well, this was a different trip. We took a large group, and uh, we were working at a church in Mexico. We were doing a building project. We were doing vacation Bible school during the day, and, and, and then also ministering in a few of the area churches. And, and one day we went into this town that was nearby, and we had a big group. So there was a city, there was kind of a platform in the center of the city, in the town square, and we decided it would be a great p place to get a group picture. And so we lined everybody up and, you know, put the teen guys in the back and the girls and our sponsors, and we, we take this picture. And as, as we're kind of getting set, I, I noticed that there are a number of police officers moving into the area. I thought, okay, this is interesting. And after we got done taking our picture, they came over. And they said that, you, that we had broken the top off of one of the columns. And, of course, we looked at it, and it had fallen off. That was true. One of our teen guys had bumped this column. The top fell off. But when you looked at it, it was like, this has already been broken. They just set this up on top. And so we thought, okay, we're going to have to pay. The question is, what are we going to have to pay? And so we sent all the, the teens back to the van with some of the sponsors, a couple of the missionaries, because I didn't speak Spanish. I had them, and we went to the police station, and then uh, several of our sponsors, and we're at the police station. And, and so it's like, okay, what does this mean? And they said, well, we have to find out how much it's going to cost to fix it. And I thought, okay, now we're going to add other people into this mix. So, well, tell us what we, what we owe. What does it, and they said, no, we have to go talk to the cement mixer the man in town that does the concrete work. And we thought, well, yeah, we know what's happening here. And we said, you know what? We're here doing construction work. We'll fix it. Well, obviously, they didn't want us fixing it. <laughs> it wasn't going to be fixed. And, but we at least cut out one level. And finally, we were able to say, okay, so give us the price. And they, it ended up being about $20. And so we, we, we paid them. Uh, we asked for a receipt <laughs> so they couldn't come back again. One of, our, one of my sponsors said, we, we noticed in, we're in the police station and it's stacked with, with cases of beer bottles. And one of our sponsors who did speak Spanish said, what's this? He said, oh, we store them here. We said, in the police station? He said, I think we know where our $20 is going. <laughs> but we were able to cut out that level. That's not what would happen here. Tax collect collectors were despicable, vile, and unprincipled. 
They were hated even more than the occupying troops of Rome because they were Jews working for Rome. They were, they were viewed as licensed robbers because they could add whatever fee they wanted. And often they used thugs to enforce the collection. And so they were surrounded by unsavory people, tax collectors and sinners. This is how they were viewed. They were actually viewed on the same social level as prostitutes. In fact, in Matthew 21, 31, it says tax collectors and harlots. And in the eyes of the Jews, one group sold their body for money, the other had sold their country for money. And they had no respect for either group. So tax collectors were a constant reminder that Israel, the Jews, were under Gentile control. And therefore, they were despised. They, it, it was the reminder or the question that would come to the mind of the Jews, has God forsaken us? And Jewish tax collectors really represented enslavement. They, they were viewed as Jews who betrayed their nation. They were, they were parasitic in the eyes of other people, social outcasts. And, and I, I'm taking time here because we don't usually think of that. We read the Gospel of Matthew and say, what a, you know, this is a, a wonderful gospel and how it's presenting Christ. But understand where he came from. He would have been a religious outcast, not just a social outcast. Matthew would not have been allowed to go to the synagogue. And if all of this doesn't provide a bleak enough picture, this man was a member of the sacred tribe of Levi. And so for somebody from the tribe of Levi to not be able to go to worship really spoke about him selling out. That's why I think he was probably the most notorious in the group of the apostles in their minds. His title, tax collector, represented infamy. No decent person would stop and talk with him on the street. There would not be a, a public conversation with Matthew. No, he, he had no friendly greetings from, from good Jews as he walked down the street. Instead, he would sense their glare. Their, their whispers, the pointed fingers behind his back. And I'm sure he had heard all the sob stories. The reasons people couldn't pay, the family tragedies, the health problems. But he had a job to do and he did it. You know, he, he had to be tough to survive. Hardened to human difficulty. His, his nature would have been bent and twisted. By, and, and really the scorn that was heaped upon him would just draw, would kind of bounce off of him because he was hardened to that. This was not a, a sensitive man. When we look at some of the others who were following John the Baptist and, and they're looking for the Messiah, they have a spiritual interest, this is not that man. Matthew wouldn't do that. So why would he do this? Why did Levi forsake friendship, the acceptance of his people? I mean, what would be the motivation for him to do this? And I think it's pretty easy to answer. He wanted money. Alexander White, in his book on biblical characters, begins the chapter on Matthew this way. Matthew loved money. Matthew, like Judas, must have money. With clean hands if he could, but clean hands or unclean, Matthew must have money. That's what drove him. You know, maybe his parents wanted him to be a priest for the prestige, but instead, Levi wanted profit. 
The child they had named after that priestly tribe of worship is bowing at the altar of wealth. But what was the price that he had to pay for that? What did it cost him to get this position? Well, for one thing, he sold his honor. He united with the Roman government against his own people. He sold out his family. There, there was a common proverb in that day that said, take not a wife out of that family wherein is a publican, for they are all publicans, or thieves, robbers, and wicked sinners. So don't marry somebody from a family that has a tax collector, because they're all in it for the same thing. He brought shame and reproach on his family name. The, the name of Alphaeus was no longer, well, I have a son who, who, who's a priest. No, it's not. he's a tax collector. That wasn't something that you would brag about. He sold out his country. He had no sense of patriotism. There was no honor for his country. He, he came from Abraham's seed, from God's chosen people, and yet he sold out his kinsmen to the Roman oppressors. All for money. I, I'm sure he could rationalize it in his mind. Well, somebody's going to do it. But he did do it. I think he sold out his conscience. He knew that tax collectors generally represented a dishonest profession. They were extortionists. And that was their, that was their reputation and it was well earned. In fact, in Luke chapter 3, when tax collectors hear John the Baptist preaching repentance and they come to him and they say, what should we do? He says to them, exact no more than that which is appointed you. Don't collect more than you should. I mean, the, the one thing John the Baptist told tax collectors is quit ripping people off. And so this would be Matthew. He sold out his faith. Well, his name is ran, linked with a godly ancestry. His heart was linked with gold. He would not be allowed in the synagogue. He was separate from his nation. He was an outcast of his tribe, from the temple, from the sacrifices. But, but to him, that wasn't as important. He practically sold his soul. Ralph Waldo Emerson made the comment that money often costs too much. That's what it cost Matthew. And so then we find Jesus coming and calling him. And we read this as we began this, this evening, the call of Matthew. As Jesus is there in Capernaum, he's been healing the sick. He's authenticating through the miracles that he is the Messiah, that these signed gifts authenticated the messenger and the message. That was the purpose of them. And, and, and Matthew had an office by the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus passes by and calls him. He, he must have known about Jesus. I mean, he had to have heard the stories. And the story right before this is, is when they, they bring a sick man to Jesus and they can't get into the house because it's so crowded. So they go up on the roof and they open the roof and they lower him down. And Jesus heals him. You know, I wonder if Matthew's cal already calculating what he can tax the building supplies for to repair the roof. And it's then that Jesus comes and passes by Matthew. And, and I really wonder if he had heard what Jesus was doing. Forgiving sins, healing people, lives that were changed. And if he didn't sense the emptiness in his soul. He had money, but there's a lot of things money can't buy. Can't buy happiness. It can't buy peace. It can't buy contentment. It can't buy forgiveness or joy. 
And now Jesus comes by. He's, he's made a good career move for money, but he doesn't have a relationship. So the question, would there be hope for a tax collector? Well, not according to the scribes and Pharisees. They come to the disciples and say, why is, why is Jesus eating with these people? And of course, the Lord's answer was, those that are well don't need a doctor. He said, I've come to reach sinners. And so Jesus comes by, and he looks at Matthew. He's, he's, he comes by, and, it, and in Matthew 9, 9, Matthew makes the statement that as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man. That's how Matthew records this encounter. I wonder if that was that look that he never forgot, that burned into his heart. As the eyes of the Lord fixed upon him and drove into his soul, it was not a passing glance, not, not to Matthew. Those compassionate, piercing eyes of the Lord broke through that hard exterior, that callousness that, that could repulse the, the harshness of others, the looks of hate. But here was a look of compassion. And the Lord says, follow me. And it says that as he saw this man in, in Matthew 9, 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. The call on this man seems to come out of nowhere. You know, we can kind of understand some of the other disciples. They're, they're with John the Baptist. They're out there hearing preaching. Or it's a brother or a friend that comes. Or Philip sitting under a tree, probably studying the Word. And, and Jesus sees him there. And all of these things taking place. But here's Matthew. He's, he's in the tax office. He's going about his daily occupation. And, and now the call comes upon him. This was a significant life choice. What, what's he going to do at this point? I mean, what is he going to do? Because he probably had more to give up than any other apostle to follow Jesus. I mean, the other apostles, the fishermen, left their nets and followed Jesus. But they went back to fishing. They could go back. Peter, James, John, Andrew, they, they left, but they could return to fishing. Their dad still had the boat. They, they still could do that occupation. Matthew, when he walked away from the tax trade, could never go back. Rome would never want him back. They would not trust the man who was siding with the one that was drawing people to him. Rome's already wondering about Jesus. No self-respecting Jew is going to have a former tax collector work for him. So this was a significant step for, for Matthew. For Matthew to surrender to follow Jesus, there was no turning back. It took courage for him to follow the Lord. I mean, Matthew, the renegade Hebrew, the traitor to the, the Levite clan, the pawn in the oppressing Roman regime, answers the call to follow Jesus. Why would he do it? because he was following the person of Jesus Christ. It wasn't joining a church, some religious system, claiming a creed, embarking on, on something like that. No, it, this was a relationship with the one who was full of grace and truth. The one who could look on Matthew and say, follow me. And he had a proper view of eternity. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
And as he follows Christ, then he introduces his friends to the Lord. And we read that in this passage, that, that he has this banquet, he hosts this banquet, and, and he invites tax collectors and others who sat down with them, it says in Luke 5, 29. Well, who were the others? Sinners. I mean, well, why would Levi invite these kinds of people? Because those were the only kinds of people that would hang around him. I mean, that was his clan now. Those were his people. These were his friends. These were the ones who would hang around a tax collector, the, the social outcasts that, that didn't fit the polite norms of society. And Matthew wants them to meet Jesus too. He wants them to see what, what has taken place. What we see in Matthew is what we saw in Philip and Andrew, that initial impulse to share Christ with others. That Andrew goes and finds his brother. That, that Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. They want to share with others. And Matthew does the same thing. And he introduces his friends to the Lord. This was a feast. It wasn't a funeral. There was joy in him turning to Christ. Yes, he was leaving his occupation, but he was delighted to be finding Christ. And, and while others tried to stigmatize Jesus for this, Jesus said, that's why I've come to reach sinners and people with sordid backgrounds who had done bad things and brought misery to other people and participated in immoral activity could come to Jesus Christ and have their sins forgiven and be accepted and we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus came to call and cleanse sinners because the fact that we are sinners means the invitation from Christ is open to us that we too can come. When we come to Christ, we who are sinners can have that relationship. And then we see in Matthew the change that comes. Isn't it amazing the man who was known for betraying his own people is the one that the Holy Spirit uses to pen the gospel that bears his name that is written to the Jews. Each of the four Gospels has a, a different perspective on the life of Christ and has a different audience. Matthew writes to the Jews. Mark writes to the Romans. Luke to the Greeks and, and John to the world. And each one has a different uh, makeup and approach because of their audience. Matthew's audience was the Jewish people that he had betrayed. The man who sold his Levitical birthright for a mess of Roman pottage is now serving the king of heaven and writes the gospel, the most Hebrew of all the gospels. He invested in that which is eternal, the word of God. And over and over in the gospel of Matthew, you read of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, quoting Old Testament scripture. In fact, 65 times Matthew quotes from the Old Testament. He calls Jesus the son of David eight times. He keeps himself in the background in his gospel as he writes. The, and really the only time he steps forward in that gospel is at that great feast that he made for Jesus and invited sinners to meet the Savior. You know, Matthew does something that no other gospel writer does with him. He identifies himself with his past. When we read the list of the apostles in Matthew 10, 
He says, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. Mark doesn't mention that. Luke doesn't mention that. And, and really, Matthew had every reason not to mention that. I mean, why tell people what you used to do? I mean, can't that even bring, you know, kind of raise questions about the whole group of disciples? You have one of them in your group? And sure, they had Simon the Zealot, but at least he was political on the right side. I mean, he was siding with, with the Jews. Matthew sided with the Romans. I mean, you, you have a tax collector on your staff? Well, he's a former tax collector. Well, yeah, but once a tax collector. I mean, and what we find is Matthew actually highlights that. That he is, Matthew was twice named. Matthew the tax collector. That's the testimony of a man with a past, but it's the testimony of the mercy of the Lord. That Jesus will save anybody. That no sin is too great, no sinner too wicked. And the truth is the Bible doesn't gloss over the past. Because it really is the testimony of the work of Christ. It's the testimony of twice named people. Can you think of any others like that in Scripture? Like Rahab, Rahab the harlot, or Solomon, who as he's listed in Matthew in the lineage, he's identified by a rather sordid situation that led to his birth when David took Bathsheba and had Uriah killed and then married Bathsheba and Solomon is of Solomon by her of Uriah is how the Greek text reads. The one who had been the wife. You know, why bring that up? Or Mary Magdalene in Luke 8 2, Mary of Magdala, a certain woman who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. Do you think Mary had done anything under the influence of demons that she regretted? that she'd probably want, not want remembered. Why bring that up? Because it's a testimony of, of God's faithfulness. Or what about the whole church at Corinth? I mean, talk about people with a past. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, it says, And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty bad list. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's a testimony of the work of God. People with all sorts of problems and sins in their backgrounds are saved and part of the church at Corinth. And so when Paul starts writing to that church, he refers to them as saints. I don't think people from that background would be the ones we would think of as saintly. But that's the work of Jesus Christ. And it's a great reminder for us that twice-named people are not burdened by their past, they're loved by the Lord. That we understand that, that we're all sinners saved by grace. Some have more respectable sins than others. 
in human perspective. But it was for those sins Jesus Christ had to die. Twice named people. Actually, all of us are tax collectors or Pharisees or sinners saved by grace. You know, it is interesting. While the Pharisees raise questions and concerns, we do find Pharisees in Scripture who turn to Christ. Nicodemus being one of those. Paul being another one. I don't know of any Sadducees that turned to Christ. We find Pharisees that were saved, but I don't know the record of any Sadducee who turned to Christ. And understand, well, some sins carry more stigma. All sins carry the price of death. The wages of sin is death. You know, on earth people try to hide and bury their past, but understand, Jesus is not embarrassed to be identified with sinners. He knows our past. He knows all the skeletons. And the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus in Romans 8.1. So do not think less of the individual, but we really think more of the Savior. This is the marvelous grace, that saving grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. And what we see is there are some changes that take place in, in, in Matthew. I'll get to that in just a minute. The first sermon Matthew heard after Jesus selected the 12 apostles. In Luke chapter 6, we, we read of him calling the 12 after a night of prayer. That's verses 12 through 16. A huge crowd comes to, to be healed. And then Jesus lifts up his eyes and he, toward his disciples and he calls them. And then he preaches. And here's what he says. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Well, we find that right after him calling the, the twelve in Luke 6. Then he goes on and says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Do you think that resonated with Matthew? Well, in the gospel that bears his name, we find similar words in what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And he records those. And then he goes on in that same sermon and says this, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor of your body what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and your body more than clothing? And as Jesus continues the message, Matthew records, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That message is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew the tax collector, the one who walked away from his tax booth to follow Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew speaks more about money and in more detailed terms than any other Gospel. Do you think there was a time that Matthew worried about what he was going to eat and drink and wear before he followed Jesus? I think that message resonated with him. It struck a chord because there had been a change of his value system. Because in Matthew 6.21, in that Sermon on the Mount, 
it says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Matthew realized when God owns everything, our heart will go where we put God's money. That giving really is that antidote to materialism. And that Matthew recorded God's word, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So really for us, we ought to focus on raising our standard of giving rather than our standard of living. That we would have a heart that says, Lord, I want you to use what I have. Now I'll go to this slide. Last summer we visited the Egyptian National Museum in Cairo. And we were able to view items connected with the life of a king who, who died at a young age. In 1922, Howard Carter discovered the burial chamber of a, a young king, uh, probably about 19 years old when he died 3,000 years earlier. He had been buried in a golden coffin, surrounded by tons of golden items. And they were provided for his assistance in the afterlife. And in all those years, that tomb had remained untouched. The treasures of King Tut. And we were able to view these in that museum. We went in and, and saw the, the death mask that is here. We were not allowed to take pictures. I had to pull this one off the internet. Uh, the other one was, uh, I was able to take, but in that room they wouldn't allow us to take pictures. And part of it was because of the, I, th I think, the wealth of what is in there and for security purposes. This death mask is made out of pure gold. Weighs 22 pounds. King Tut died at the age of 19 and was buried with this massive amount of wealth. And it was really interesting to be able to tour the museum and see this. But you know, there's another burial site in Cairo. We didn't visit it. It's not in the nicest area of town. It's the tomb of another young man, a missionary who died of cerebral meningitis at the age of 25. And if you go down a certain street littered with garbage and you'll come to this tomb and, and find this unkept grave of an American missionary, William Borden. And there is where he is buried. In 1904, Borden graduated from Chicago High School as a millionaire. He was heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. His parents gave him a trip around the world. And while traveling through Asia and the Middle East and Europe, it, it really gave Borden a burden for the world's hurting people. And so writing home, he said this, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. And when he made that decision, he wrote in the back of his Bible two words, no reserves. He attended Yale University, and upon graduating, he turned down a high-paying job offers that, that were available to him. He gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions, and he entered two more words in his Bible, no regrets. He completed his studies at Princeton Seminary, and he sailed for China. He wanted to work with Muslims. He stopped first in Egypt for some language preparation. And it was while he was there in Egypt that he became critically ill with spinal meningitis. He died a month later at the age of 25. Say, so, what a waste. Not in God's plan. In his Bible, under the words, no reserves and no re retreats, he wrote, no regrets. On his tomb, 
There's a number of things that are said. Part of it toward the middle says this, a man in Christ, he arose and forsook all and followed him. Just like Matthew. He left it all and followed Christ. Borden too followed Christ with no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. But at the bottom of that tombstone, right there are these words. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. That's the testimony of William Borden. Neither of these men could take their money with them into eternity. King Tut's mummified body was surrounded by the wealth he left behind. But what good does it do him in eternity? William Borden gave away his wealth. He shared his fortune. He invested in missions. He invested his life in that which is eternal. And like Matthew the tax collector says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Are we faithfully following the Lord? I think the question that we can consider is, what are we willing to give up to follow Jesus? To learn from Matthew the joy of following Christ. The man who had a past from the view of his own country, but we know him as the one who wrote the letter, the, the gospel to the Jews, sharing the king of Israel and the king of kings. What are we willing to give up to follow him? Let's pray together this evening.